Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so glad you're with us today. Here on Seek Reality, we always are interested in learning more about spiritual growth. I mean, we started out talking about the afterlife, but you can't talk about the afterlife, to be frank, without talking about spiritual growth, which frankly is the whole reason why the universe even exists. That's what the evidence strongly suggests to us. And while we can do it with Christianity, there are some Eastern spiritual traditions that are really a lot more interested in spiritual growth than is any movement in the West. So you'd think we would by now have had quite a few guests with backgrounds in Eastern spiritual thought. And we have had a few, but very few. And the reason is simple. Nearly everyone who listens to Seek Reality lives in the West. And to many of us, the notions that prevail in you know Buddhism, Hinduism, the other Eastern spiritual traditions feel kind of strange and been foreign, and they have funny names and all of that. But in fact, there is now an increasing melding underway that's, I think, spiritually very healthy. So you can expect from now on to be hearing from a few experts on Eastern thought who have good ideas to share and, frankly, who have no relationship with Christianity. Our guest today, I think, is someone with an especially interesting background who is really able to help us bridge the gap for everybody's benefit. Leonard Perlmutter is the founder and director of the American Meditation Institute in Averill Park, New York. And and he's the author of the best-selling The Heart and Science of Yoga and the originator and editor of Transformation, the Journal of Meditation as Mind-Body Medicine. He has studied in India and he actually has, he's a direct disciple of Swami Rama of the Himalayas And this Swami, this is amazing to me, under laboratory conditions at the Menninger Institute, he demonstrated that blood pressure, heart rate, and the autonomic nervous system can be voluntarily controlled. You know, go ahead and control your heart rate with your your mind. That's amazing. His demonstrations uh, have led to and helped to establish what's called the mind-body movement, which to me is a, a, that's a source of wow. Leonard Perlmutter has presented workshops on the benefits of meditation and yoga science at a lot of really prestigious places, including the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, which is arguably the best cancer center in the United States. So he's no slouch. And since 2009, his Heart and Science of Yoga Empowering Self-Care Program has been certified by the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association for continuing medical education credit. So he is mainstream now. Leonard, welcome. I'm so glad you're with us today. Thank you, Roberta, and thank you for the invitation. Listeners like to know something about our guests and and why they do what they do and where it all came from and so on. So can you give us a little bit of a, of a just a summary of what got you into this? You're an, you're an American, you're a Westerner, and, and you, you really have dived into this with both feet and you thoroughly understand it. What started you on this spiritual journey? Well, I think the two guideposts or principles, uh, even from early childhood, have been, first and foremost, I've always been very philosophically oriented. It's just the way I have always viewed the world in philosophical terms. And the second principle that has been a guiding force for me is practicality. Uh, I guess I'm a a very practical fellow, and the, the, the philosophy and the practicality at an early age motivated me to join the Scouts. So I became a Cub Scout, I became a Boy Scout, and gosh, uh, it was a a wonderful way to learn practical tools for survival and just for everyday life. And in fact, one day I was speaking to my Scout Master, and I said, you know, the Scout uh, motto is, be prepared. Be prepared for what, I asked him. (laughs) And he looked at me, and he says, Leonard, how would I know? That's why we 
That's why we need these tools. And, and so I took that to heart at a very early age. I need to find myself some tools. And then uh, this was, oh, this must have been maybe 60 years ago. Uh, maybe not quite 60, maybe, maybe 50, 55 years ago. Uh, the man who was my uh, mechanic, my auto mechanic that took care of my car, said to me something very profound. Now, he knew nothing about yoga science, uh, ostensibly, but he was a very practical fellow. And what he said to me made tremendous sense. And what he said was, if you have the right tool, every job is easy. <laughs> and oh, so, yeah, yeah. That may well be true. <laughs> That's true. So uh, I took that to heart. And so that led me uh, in, in my early 20s to investigate uh, different religions, different philosophies. Uh, and what I found was they're all the same. Everything at their core, every religion, every spiritual tradition at, at its core has the same quality. <clears throat> and what I found out, what it is, is yoga science, which is the oldest spiritual and meditation tradition on the planet. Now, it in of itself is not a religion. It's an educational body of knowledge. But the principles and the teachings of yoga science have found their way into every single religion and spiritual tradition. And so I knew immediately that I was on the right path for me. So t tell me the history. Um, uh, it, it, how, does, how does yoga science, the, that whole very old tradition, how does it fit with modern Eastern religions? Is it, is it their ancestor? How does it, does it, is there such a thing as yoga today, just in the same way and separate from other religions? Or what is, what's the history? Well, uh, for example, uh, Eastern religions have, have really become the stewards, the modern stewards of yoga science. So they have kept it alive wow. on, some, okay. on some level. I get Although, it. So, uh, to be very frank, uh, many of these rely on the religious perspective, and so it's skewed a little bit. And the beauty of, of yoga science is it can only come to life in everyday life, in everyday relationships. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're just deifying the teapot instead of drinking the tea. Yes, very well said. And one thing I want to make sure people, there are people scratching their heads by your saying it's not really a religion. And uh, I think people need to understand what the difference is. Every religion is based in Fear, essentially, uh, you know, you've got to do things a certain way and, um, you know, don't let God get mad at you. God will judge you uh, or there are rituals and that will they'll placate the gods, maybe or one God or whatever. All religions are that way. But this, it seems, is merely a system of using your mind, understanding how your mind and your body fit together. Um, it's it really doesn't seem to have rituals, superstitions any of that in it. Am I right about that? I read the book. Well, that's, that's uh, basically true. There are certain traditions that uh, uh, develop, but many of them are just traditions that each individual practitioner has created for himself or herself. So essentially, yoga science sees the human being as an instrument of the supreme intelligence at our core is this eternal consciousness, wisdom, bliss, and fullness, having a human experience in time and space through a mind-body-sense complex. Mm -hmm. And so what's so interesting is, and the Buddha, the compassionate Buddha, over 2,000 years ago echoed this, in, in so far as the key to successful living lies in the mind, because the body relies on the mind for prompting. 
in order to act. In other words, I cannot raise my hand over my head or do anything with my physical body without first entertaining a thought. Right, right. So the emphasis in yoga science is really about the mind, because at the present time, the mind of humanity is in tremendous turmoil. There's conflict. There's anarchy in the mind. And all all we're asked to do is is to parent and train the mind to be more orderly so that all the different functions of the mind can make contributions, but not beyond the perfect wisdom that the conscience can receive from the super conscious portion of the mind. And I'll explain all of that. Let let me first make a point which kind of confounds me. I mean, we are living in a country, the United States of America, which is certain that the brain produces human consciousness. There is more than a billion dollars currently being spent seeking the source of human consciousness in the brain, which is actually, as you know, the rough equivalent of uh, taking apart a transistor radio because you want to find the source of Elvis Presley's voice. Same concept. But we living in that country, we're talking to you today, and you are advocating for a system of thought, which, if, I, if I'm to believe your book, 5,000 years ago, there were people wise enough to understand that consciousness is primary. That is correct. Consciousness. How is, is that possible? Think. Let's stop and uh, Leonard. That you have a. If you understand, this is amazing to me that they that that was there was. What made them understand that? Do you know anything about the thinking that went into all that wisdom? Because it turns out that's really true. They basically got there five thousand years before any American scientist ever got there. Well, <laughs> they how well, they knew that. I I don't. I'm sorry. I'm all excited about this because I couldn't get over it when I first came upon it in your book. These women and men thousands of years ago, and we say 5,000, but uh, I think that's a very conservative figure. Oh, gee. <laughs> uh, Wherever it was, it's amazing. Yes, it is amazing. And so they, in deep meditation, when they could still the mind, they, these human beings began to see the truth that exists at the core of their own being. You see, within consciousness resides an intuitive library of wisdom. It's called the superconscious portion of the mind. Now, whoever uh, uh, heard of the superconscious portion of the mind when we were in school? I didn't. Uh, (laughs) No, and most people now don't either. Those those of us who study the afterlife understand that when we come into these bodies, we basically pack away most of our vast eternal minds as our superconscious, we just we we don't have direct as- access to it while we're here. We may have access in some states, but that's but yeah, it it really exists and it includes. Well, we do have areas. access. Well, the point is, we have access to the superconscious portion of the mind twenty four seven through our conscience. That's the conduit to go yeah. outside the matrix and yep. then bring that wisdom oh, into the matrix. <laughs> it's just amazing, but it makes sense. It makes sense. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just had to express my. But in order for the conscience, which its functionality is more like a mirror, it acts as a mirror and it can reflect perfect wisdom from the super conscious portion of the mind. That's beyond the conscious. It's beyond the unconscious. It's the same portion of the mind where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations, where Paul McCartney today hears beautiful melodies doesn't mean that we're going to become songwriters. It doesn't mean that we're going to become physicists. What it does mean is that the more that we can coordinate the functions of the mind to support the operation of the conscience, the conscience can reflect perfect wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind. And that wisdom, if we can put it into action, will enable each of us to fulfill the purpose of our individual lives without pain. The word conscience, most to most people, your conscience is is your guilt center. Um, mm-hmm. I have a guilty conscience because of the fact that I ate dessert before uh, the, the guests even arrived. That kind of 
conscience. But conscience, you, you break down into the basis of it, which is con with and science wisdom. Is that, am I right in that I wrote that down? Absolutely. Day? That's right. Okay. Correct. That makes yes. a lot of sense. It's with wisdom is what it really it's means. With wisdom. Yeah, that's right. And so what we need to do is we have to understand the mind because the mind moves first and the body follows. And we know that every action that we take, whether it's a physical action, a verbal action, or a mental action, it always brings about a consequence that can lead us in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. That became Newton's third law of motion. And so, and so we need to examine these, these four functions of the mind, see how they operate, see how they're not operating efficiently, and that is getting us into trouble. Say, say again what the, the four functions of the mind are specifically so that we can, we okay. can separate them in our own minds. Okay. First is the ego. Second, the senses. Third, unconscious. Fourth, conscience. Okay, makes perfect sense. Now, right. when, when we talk about the ego coming from this direction, um, and I think it's the best place it's talked, it's really discussed is in A Course in Miracles. The ego, it's a lot like what you say the ego is too. It's like this, this grubby little gremlin that is trying to keep your body alive and keep you safe and do all these things and, and basically gets in the way of your doing anything spiritual. And that's kind of what your ego is too. Talk about what you, how you see the ego. Well, I see the ego as being hardwired to the reptilian brain. Right. The same thing. And, and, yeah. so, and so the ego, like the reptilian brain, is heavily invested in self-preservation. Yeah. I don't want to die. I don't want the form not yeah. to exist. And because of that emphasis on self-preservation, the ego has a terrible, terrible fear of annihilation. Yes, exactly and, the same concept. It's amazing. Yes, and so, and so the ego uh, is sent out by the reptilian brain in the midst of every relationship. The ego presents itself as a color commentator, and the ego, in the midst of every relationship, cuts that relationship in half, and looks at the first half and says, "Oh, this is very pleasant." I like it. I think this is good. Let's <laughs> reprise it. But on the other hand, over here, this is unpleasant. I don't like this. I call this bad. I want this eliminated from our life. Mm-hmm. And so the problem <laughs> for us is that the ego only has a limited perspective. Right. And it's right. loud and it's pushy. And it's insistent. But it becomes very addicted to likes and dislikes. It wants what it likes, and it doesn't want what it doesn't like. But from our limited perspective here on this planet, we already know that which appears as pleasant isn't always good for us. That which appears as unpleasant isn't always bad for us. So if I just follow the promptings of the ego and that limited perspective, I know I'm going to wind up in a lot of pain. And so I am. And so we all are. But I have to say that the ego can also be our friend because it's not always wrong. Like right now, Roberta, both of us need a healthy ego to have this conversation and to make sense. We also explain need, that. Explain what you did. Explain what you just said. Why, why do we need a healthy ego? To have a conversation. <laughs> to have a conversation that makes sense. To drive an automobile, we need a healthy ego. We need that ego that's going to keep us alive. That's going to inform us on how to drive, how to have a conversation. Okay. So All right. We, I see what you're saying. Okay. All right. So the ego is is not always wrong. But it's often wrong, and it's never in doubt. That's the trouble. It doesn't doesn't want to have a conversation with you. That's right. Just, okay, right. so that's exactly. the ego. That's the ego. Now, the senses, 
The second function of the mind, they're very interesting because they and the, and the senses and the organs of sense are ex, our creative energy is extruded by the mind through our senses of sight and smell and taste and hearing and touch so that our consciousness can go out into the material world in a desperate attempt to find objects and relationships that will make me happy, that will make me secure, that will make me healthy. Now here's the problem. The senses are a wee bit nearsighted, and so they can only really see the front of what is promised, and they cannot see the back, mm -hmm. which is generally painful. So what happens is, the mind has become addicted to sense gratification right? and extrudes our creative energy and the senses go after every imagined pot of gold at the end of every imagine, imagined rainbow. Oh, wow. Most of okay. which never, never works out well at all. <laughs> no. So in the process, the senses waste a tremendous amount of our creative energy that we can use in fulfilling all of our duties and responsibilities. It's not any dissimilar to brushing our teeth and squeezing the tube, and out comes the toothpaste. Yes, the toothpaste comes out fairly easily, but it's virtually impossible to put it back into the tube. And it's the same with our creative energy. It's right. the same with our creative energy. When the senses dissipate all this creative energy on these wild goose chases, we can't retrieve it. And we suffer. We become pained. That's the senses. Again, limited perspective, often wrong, never in doubt. And the third function is the unconscious this is the repository to everything that we deem essential to self-preservation. It's our merits and demerits. It's everything that we want to hold on to, like our memories for, from the past or our imaginations for the future. And the unconscious mind, the senses, and the ego are advisors. They can't make a decision for us. They can only advise. Mm -hmm. And so very often, the ego senses an unconscious mind vote in a block. Oh, gee. <laughs> this drama in this too, my yeah, goodness. There's, there's sort of a voting block. Uh -huh. And there's real anarchy in the mind because what happens is the ego, the senses in the unconscious mind are very loud and pushy and insistent. That's the kind of advisors, that's the kind of counselors we have in our mind right now. That's, you've got three, because there's the ego, the senses, and the unconscious mind. Yes. And, and all fourth, of them are, do they, do they act together, or are they always fighting, or what's likely to happen? Well, generally speaking, they, they work together, because the unconscious mind is the repository for all of these opinions Okay. That the okay. ego and the senses have uh, come up with. Okay. Mm -hmm. That that yeah. brings us to the conscience. Okay. Oh, so no wonder you think your conscience is so important. Somebody's going to keep order important. among the children. It's, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> correct. So the conscience is the only function of the mind that can discriminate, determine, judge, and decide. That's the decision maker. And when I heard that, and I learned it, and I began to practice and found the truth of it, that I knew that was a game changer, because what it meant to me was, every single choice I have ever made in my life, and every single choice I will ever make in my life, is always authored by the conscience. However, if the ego senses an unconscious mind, these counselors, these advisors, are so loud and so pushy, that noise makes it impossible for the conscience to reflect superconscious wisdom. 
Instead, because the conscience is the only function of the mind that can make a decision, when there's so much noise and anarchy in the mind, the conscience just winds up rubber stamping the loudest voice that it can hear. And that's what gets us in a tremendous amount of trouble. Right. Basically, there's nobody really in charge because... uh, That's right. the, The... the inmates are running the asylum, basically. Yes, all in service to the reptilian brain, you see. Of course. Because, above all else, I don't want to die. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so, you know, it's what to me is fascinating is that the, the information we get from A Course in Miracles, and for those who aren't familiar with it, um, it was dictated in the 60s, by a group of discarnates, um, apparently led by Jesus. So it's intended to be the same stuff that he taught 2000 years ago, only updated for today. And as you pointed out, all the teaching is the same teaching. Yes, everything comes from yoga. It's all yoga. The Course of Miracles is all yoga. Isn't that amazing? I think that is fascinating. Well, to me, it was a relief. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it is it is a relief. But so people saying, no, I don't want it to be yoga. Here's the thing. What, what does the word yoga mean? You could name it anything. You could, That's you right. Could That's the point I was just about to make. You could call it anything. Words are just pointing. what yoga means. Words oh, are oh, just it means, it means union. I wrote it union. down. Union. Union yes. between the personality and the supreme intelligence. That's all. I and my father are one. That's and it. basically, this is this is a these people became good at accessing their their unconscious mind, their their the and really ac- accessing the mind of God, and they learned these things the super years the before super anybody else did. Right? Yeah. That's they really access they access the superconscious portion of the mind. Okay. And so when. That, that places a lot of responsibility on us, you see. Yes. We have to become the parent. <laughs> we yes. have to learn to parent our, and train our mind. Yes. And so that's, that's the experiment each time. So here's what I do. When I, when I have a, a relationship that requires an action, and every relationship does require an action that brings about a consequence, I I have an appointment set with the ego senses, unconscious mind, and conscience. And we meet around the kitchen table. <laughs> and I, I'm the moderator. I'm the, I'm the parent. You hold the fork. Okay. I, that's right. And so I say, look, everybody, we've just finished dinner. And so the question then comes up. Are we going to brush our teeth? So I, I want to hear from each of you. What What is your perspective on this? Uh, because we have to make a choice here. And so I'm going to call on you individually. Ego, what is your opinion? Are we going to brush our teeth? Are we not going to brush our teeth? And the ego says something to the effect, I don't like it. It's unpleasant. I'm against it. I vote no. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Now, please sit down quietly, and I'm going to call on the senses next. Senses, would you please share what what you uh, believe? And the senses might say something. Well, you know, I really had a wonderful dinner, but I love the dessert. You know, that apple pie that we had for dessert, that's my favorite. And uh, insofar as this brushing of the teeth, no, I'm against it. Chiefly because I'm I'm I would prefer having a second slice of apple pie. That's what I. At least apple pie flavored flavored toothpaste. For heaven's sake, let's be (laughs) let's be reasonable about this. I can't wait to hear what the other guys say. Okay, so thank you, thank you, senses, and you can sit down. And now, unconscious mind, uh, what is your perspective? Oh, I'm with the other two. I'm with the other two. That's my habit. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, unconscious. Okay, so now uh, the parent reappears and says, look, I have an experiment I would like each of you to participate in with me. 
I'm going to now listen to the conscience. I'm going to call on the conscience. And in the quietude of this mind now, because you're all sitting nicely and quietly, I'm going to ask the conscience to reflect perfect wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind and share it with us. Conscience, would you do that for us? And the conscience says, certainly. And the conscience might say something to the effect, well, I think we can all agree this life that we are living is not a sprint. It's more like a marathon. It's a long marathon. And for a long marathon, we need healthy, strong teeth. We need healthy, strong gums. We need a healthy, strong immune system. And by taking a two-minute time out and going into the bathroom and brushing our teeth, that will help us have stronger teeth, stronger gums, and a stronger immune system. So I say as the parent, well, that's a wonderful presentation. I would like all of us now, just for the sake of an experiment, and an experiment means it doesn't have to be forever, it's just an experiment, just to see how it feels. So let's all go in and brush our teeth, and then we'll come back to the kitchen table. And we all go in, we brush our teeth, it only takes two minutes, we come back, and then me, the parent, speaks to the ego. What did you experience, dear ego? And the ego might say, oh, wasn't so bad. It wasn't <laughs> so bad, you know? And you know the best thing? I didn't die. That's I, of, I, I, I often equate <laughs> any kind of change with death. Right. And that was a change for sure, because uh, I always vote no against uh, brushing the teeth, but it wasn't so bad. Okay, well, thank you, Ego. You could sit down. And senses, what did you experience? Oh, I was concerned myself. But you know, when the tongue was gliding over the front teeth to check out what it felt like, it was smooth, and I didn't feel any of that mossy feeling on my teeth, and <laughs> I really, feeling. I hate that. <laughs> yeah, oh. we, I think we all do. <laughs> so so I, had a, I had a fairly pleasant experience. Thank, thank you, senses, says the parent. You can sit down now. And unconscious mind, what did you experience? Oh, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad. Okay, so what has just happened, Roberta? I have just provided an experiment for the ego, senses, and unconscious mind, and it turned out on some level to be not what they had expected. It was rather pleasant, and it was easy. Uh huh. And so now I have established a beachhead of a, of a new kind of relationship with the ego senses and unconscious mind that in certain circumstances, they trust me more today than they did yesterday. They also trust the conscience and the superconscious wisdom that the conscience can reflect. Right. And it's up to me then to build on that with another relatively easy experiment and another easy experiment that will not be a threat, but will be a good experience for the ego senses and unconscious mind, and that will expand their perspective. And the more so that I can do that, habits change. We begin to change the software of the mind. So really, this would this this kitchen table experiment would the next time um, eating eating my salad, which I don't like, um, we would have the same conversation around the table and get overruled and eat it, and then everybody would say, "Well, that wasn't, that wasn't terrible, right?" That's, That's the same kind of thing that this is how basically we re, we reorient our lives toward health and happiness. That's exactly correct, because we have all the answers that we need from the superconscious mind. Right. Wow. That's what I said. <laughs> I want to stress again the fact, everyone, this is, these are teachings 
thousands of years old. They, they, they're, uh, we are closer to the time of Jesus than these teachings are from the other direction to the time of Jesus. That's how old these teachings are. And yet they do make amazingly intuitive sense, I have to say. Yes, and, and uh, Jesus practiced the same thing. There's a, there is some of this in his teachings, yes. It's hard Absolutely. to know because the religion ignores everything he said, basically. Well, but, uh, you know, religions, they, they do the best that they can. They don't do everything. But, gosh, it, it would be a terrible, terrible world uh, without uh, that influence. But they don't answer all the questions. Mm-hmm. No, and don't. so because it's a religion... It also has an ego, which is also afraid of annihilation. Right. So the human frailty colors the religion. Yes, total. Very good. That's a very wise point, because all religions are human made. That's God right. didn't say, okay, let's have this religion. This is what we're, we're going to call it. This is the winner. All the others are wrong. God He's never, never heard of Christianity. Yes. <laughs> Jesus and Jesus actually came to abolish religions. He says it right in the Gospels. Instead, he got his own. That's the poor man. But yeah, that, this is this to me. What, what's fascinating about this to me is this really is the parent of spiritual thinking in a very very early time. I mean, when when these teachings were being laid down, here's just a little perspective. Everybody, virtually everybody living in Europe, was basically an East African, they had just migrated into Europe and they still had dark skin. They had dark skin until about 3000 BC. Mm-hmm. And that's, that gives you some perspective. This is old stuff. Now, people who follow yoga science, do they also follow a religion at the same time? Uh, yes and no. It, it depends on, on the individual and what they feel that they need. So if, for example, you're a Christian and you follow this idea of coordinating the functions of the mind to allow the conscience to reflect superconscious wisdom, my, my point is that you'll become a better Christian or a better Muslim or a better Jew or a better Buddhist. So, but or, do, do, or, if you're, or if you're an atheist... No problem. <laughs> that too, right? Just but, believe but, in yourself. What, what are most people? I mean, if I mean, is this is this attached, for example, to Hinduism very commonly? So many Hindus are also following yoga. yoga uh, I, I don't. Uh, I can't say that. I can't say that. Uh, even though uh, Hinduism is the repository of of this, it's it's different to learn it, and it's different from learning it, and then experimenting with it. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I I can't say that uh, uh, every Hindu is a yoga scientist. I would say it's probably about the same percentage uh, as uh, uh, of all of humanity. It's probably maybe 2% of the world. Really? Okay. All right. See, this is something I didn't know when I, I actually majored in religion in college, but um, I, I remember the terms but I had forgotten what they meant. So it was sort of like old home week to, go, good, to read good. your book and, and be re-familiarized with. The- well, you know, every, yoga science, you don't have to learn it. It's a remembering process. The more yeah. that you commit to the experiment, it's all inside of us. Yeah, that, well, that, that's, of course, very important and, and very true. And I, I, I'm just wondering if there is any, you know, what the relationship with um, a Course in Miracles really is, because as I say, a lot of the teachings are quite similar. Well, as, as I mentioned, I, I believe that uh, the, the essence, the core of, of uh, that uh, teaching, the Course in Miracles, is yoga science. It's all based on yoga science. Yeah. In every spiritual tradition. Quite fascinating, I have to say, Leonard. Very interesting. I, I think what do, when people come to you, what, what, what is their presenting complaint? What, what, do they most, what are they most looking for from you? Is there any one or two things that they are? Students, you mean? Yes. 
Well, I think that they're looking for uh, relief from pain. Okay, fair. Wow. Okay. They're looking for relief from pain, uh, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Uh, and the more that we do the experiments, we come to know that we have a brilliance of confidence and an imperishable comfort always with us. So we don't have to be dependent exclusively on experts outside of ourselves who themselves are often wrong, but never in doubt. That's true. That's really true. Mm -hmm. I wrote down some things from your book that I just wanted to mention. Um, Please. I remember studying the Bhagavad Gita and um, one of the things that you quoted as saying is whenever there is a decline in truth and an advance in untruthfulness, the Supreme being enters the, the human, the human body to protect and reestablish Dharma, which is basically um, uh, goodwill. Um, uh, you know, the good, the golden rule. Correct. Explain that. First, first tell people what, what it is, because it's a very, very ancient um, book of teachings. The Bhagavad Gita is uh, uh, a blessing for anyone who uh, takes to it and studies it. It is a, uh, it's a story uh, that uh, uh, talks about a battle that is about to be engaged between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And the forces of light are being led by a military general named Arjuna, and he is the greatest military general in the history of the world at the time, never lost a battle. And the, the person who drove his chariot for him into battle is named Krishna. Yeah. And so Arjuna is the general and asks Krishna to drive him out to between the two warring factions to see the front lines just before the battle is about to be in, be started. And when Arjuna, who has never lost a battle, this great general, sees the front lines, he comes down off of the chariot, throws his armaments down, his, his bow and arrows. He starts sobbing. He has a panic attack and he looks at Krishna and he says, I'm giving up my generalship. I'm going to become a monk. <laughs> there's, a, there's a career change. Right? <laughs> right. Right at this critical moment. Uh -huh. And so you have to know that Arjuna is not just a military general. That's just for the story. Arjuna really is our personality. And Krishna is not just the person who drives the chariot. He is the he represents the supreme intelligence. Yes. So the question it begs the question: Why did this military general, who have, has never lost a battle, why did he decide at that moment that he was going to become a monk instead? And the reason was this battle that was about to begin was different from every other battle that he had ever fought. You see, every other battle that he had fought was with an external enemy, and he always won. But this was not against an external enemy. It is a civil war. And he loves people and respects people on the enemy side, the side of darkness. They're his cousins. And he doesn't want to live up to uh, his uh, ability. He doesn't want to be responsible for their death. And he's a man in the middle of his life. He has his own children. He doesn't want them to die. Mm -hmm. So it's our story. Yeah, Arjuna it, it's a is us. story. Yeah. Arjuna is us. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's the personality struggling, struggling with all these obstacles, this darkness that is in our mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're attached to it. Right? The ego, the senses, and the unconscious mind, they're yes. attached to this darkness. That's a very good point. These yes. things that cause us disease. 
Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, the question is, which side are we going to fight on? Because, yeah. because every human being has to make that choice in life. Which side are we going to fight on? The side right. of light to remove the darkness or the side of darkness that can obliterate the light? Or the way we might say it is on the side of love or on the side of fear. Yes, that's and correct. And we all know which side we'd like to be on, but which side are we actually fighting on is another question. Mm-hmm. Leonard, this has been so delightful. We're coming to the end of our time. What do you want people to take away from our conversation today? I would really like uh, for the, uh, the folks who have been listening not to believe a word I have said, okay? I don't want you to believe a word I said because I want you to I want you to be a doubting Thomas and I want you to be I want you to be a critical thinker. But if you have interest in what you heard today, I want you to turn your entire mind body sense complex into your own personal laboratory and experiment with what you heard today to find the truth for yourself. For yourself, right? Find it for yourself. That's the only way that you will know and you will know that you know the truth. Otherwise, you're always dependent on somebody like Leonard or somebody else outside of you. And that creates a tremendous sense of lack. So don't believe me. Test it. That is so wise. You know, in eight years plus, we've, I've been doing these interviews. You're the first person who's ever said, well, what I want people to do is not believe anything I've said. You really threw me there. But you're absolutely right. Everyone should just, this, that's, this is why we come actually into these lives, so that we can learn these truths for ourselves. But I think your book is delightful. It's very short, everyone. It's quite simple to understand. It's not overwhelmingly um, Eastern. It's more wisdom but knowing that it's wisdom that's so many thousands of years old is really quite wonderful leonard thank you so much for being here it's been my pleasure um the website is americanmeditation.org and we'll be putting that in the notes to this program and the book itself uh, roberta has a uh, its own website which is yourconscience.org good okay perfect all right so there are two that'll be in the in the notes Everyone, once again, we've come to the end of our time too soon. This has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, and I'm so glad you were with us today. Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began and you never will end. And when you get that, and I hope you will get it soon, it changes everything in your life for the better. Next week, our guest will be the illustrious Michael Tim, who will be with us for the sixth time. Mike is a sweet and humble man in his early 80s now. He's done such extraordinary work in the field of afterlife research and documentation that he holds a special place in the hearts of all his fellow researchers. He's the author of seven books about the afterlife and about the work of pioneers in afterlife communication. His best past books include the Afterlife Revealed, Resurrecting Leonard, Leonor, I can never say her name, Leonora Piper, The Articulate Dead, The Afterlife Explorers, Dead Men Talking, which is about First World War, um, uh, young men who were killed on the battlefield and didn't know they were dead, and Transcending the Titanic, another case of people who had no idea what was going on. It's, it's, this is a body of work that has no equal. It is fun to read and it is extraordinary and it's right down the line true. If you want a crash course in what the afterlife is like. Just load up your Kindle and read all his books. Michael Tim had has a recent book now that we talked about a little in the spring, and we're going to talk about it more next week. It's called No One Really Dies, 25 Reasons to Believe in the Afterlife. And he's going to proceed to tell us that he doesn't 100% believe, which really rocks me, but he'll explain why. And, and maybe he has Leonard's reason. I'm not sure. But this is going to be fun. It always is when he joins us. So please be with us next week. And this week, we've been talking with Leonard Perlmutter, who is the founder and director of the American Meditation Institute in Averill Park, New York. And he's the author and editor of Transformation, the Journal of Meditation as Mind-Body Medicine. Leonard has done a great deal of study in the field of Eastern religions, as as you've heard. 
And he teaches these practices now in the United States and in Canada. And today we've been talking about his great brand new little book called Your Conscience, the key to unlock limitless wisdom and creativity and solve all of life's challenges, which to me is a very, is a very ambitious title, but I think the book does help you live up to it. We've had very few experts in Eastern thought as seek reality guests, and frankly, many of them um, have not gone over well with listeners from what I've heard from them, uh, just because they were so hard to under, sort of understand and relate to. I think Leonard is right down the middle, easy for Westerners to relate to and understand. And much of what is in his book is so consistent with what we've been learning from Jesus and from other Western sources that it feels very, very comfortable you begin to see really that all the best and truest strains of spiritual thought are beginning to coalesce to everybody's benefit. As you know, my own nonfiction books are Liberating Jesus, My Thomas, The Fun of Dying, The Fun of Staying in Touch, The Fun of Growing Forever, The Fun of Living Together, and early next year, The Fun of Loving Jesus, Embracing the Christianity that Jesus Taught. For young children, there's the fun of meeting Jesus, and we expect to do another children's book as well about about. The dog dies. And I think that's going to be very helpful to kids when we can finally get it done. All these books are available through bookstores or on Amazon or the and the adult books also are available as audio books. If you want to talk about any of my books or what we talked about today or anything at all, you can always contact me through the green contact block on robertagrimes.com. I always answer emails as long as you've given me your correct email address, but it can take, take up to a week now because I get so many of them. So we've really, we've really run out of time. I just have time left to say this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy, please make the most of this coming week in our one reality. Always knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being and you, most of all in the entire universe, you in particular are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.